the breakout session on disaster preparedness. And uh, I think many of you were here for this afternoon's or the, the lunchtime speaker um, talking about the Broadmoor District, talking a lot about how uh, community building before a disaster aids significantly in recovery. Um, and that's, that's a lot of what we're trying to generate through the Neighborhood Empowerment Network. Um, we know in San Francisco, it's not if we have a big disaster, it's when. USGS says that 62% uh, of the next 25 years, we will have a major disaster on one of the many faults here in the Bay Area. Um, how many of you were here for Loma Prieta? All right. So there was damage to, in San Francisco because of the Loma Prieta earthquake. Some, some parts of the city did have significant damage. That was not our earthquake. That was the earthquake of, of Santa Cruz, of Watsonville. It was centered 50 miles south of here. That was a big earthquake for that area. When experts talk about a big earthquake here in San Francisco, they're not talking about a Loma Prieta. They're talking about an earthquake the size of the 1906 earthquake and the damage that we saw after that incident. Um, you know, it's, there's plans in place. The city, we do lots of planning around emergency preparedness, but there is no doubt that resources are going to be overwhelmed in a disaster. We know transportation is going to be affected. We know that electricity is going to be out. We know that the phone service is going to be interrupted. Um, we know that hospitals are going to be overwhelmed. And I think that's why each one of you is here today, because you understand that it's not just about us being personally prepared. We have to really work with our neighbors to be prepared as a community to respond and to be able to help each other. Um, there's uh, some lovely panelists we have here today, and they're going to sort of talk about um, uh, sort of a range of examples of ways that they have prepared in their neighborhoods um, from, uh, we have Eric Artiseros, she is the lieutenant from the fire department who runs the NERT program. She's going to tell you a little bit about NERT. Um, we have Jamie Lopez, who is a NERT volunteer. She's going to talk to you a little bit about how she's used NERT to organize in her neighborhood. Um, then we're going to have um, Madeline Mackey from the Red Cross, talk about using Red Cross resources to be better prepared for a disaster. Uh, we have Michael Lau from NICOS, the Chinatown Disaster. He's talking to talk about the Chinatown Disaster Preparedness Committee, an example of a very organized neighborhood around the topic of disaster planning. They have their own um, disaster plan. And we have Judy Choi from Animal Care and Control that's going to talk about pet preparedness. And Michael Peterson is from PG&E. He's going to talk a little bit about PG&E. And I, again, am Amy Ramirez, and I will uh, facilitate a little discussion afterwards based on the questions that folks have. And let's get started. I'm sorry, I'm Amy Ramirez. I'm with the Department of Emergency Management. Thank you. Hi, thank you all for choosing to get involved in the conversation of disaster preparedness. I think we heard at lunch how important it is. And I'd just like to present a little bit about the training program that the San Francisco Fire Department has conducted since 1990, free of charge to you. Um, I see a few people in the room who are NERT trained. Can everyone who has had NERT training raise your hands? That's awesome. I know some of you have had it more than once, so we're very appreciative for that. Um, 1990 spurred the fire department to react 
to what was not being done at the time, which was training for citizens and how to take care of themselves after the disaster, how to feel more empowered about what they can do after the disaster instead of just waiting in lines for what people could do for them. So it fits very nicely that 20 years later we're having a conversation that still kind of encourages what people can do. And while many of you were here in 89, we know this is a very transient city, so there are a lot of people that weren't here. So getting to know your neighbors is kind of a lost art, right? Even this morning, part of our discussion was, how do I even talk to the person who lives next door to me? So um, that's really a conversation that we need to have, and disaster preparedness will build upon all of the conversations that are being held today about how to do that. So the training program that the fire department offers has you in mind first. It is built on the foundation of personal preparedness. And what that means is the standards that we're all heard to death, right? Building a kit, making a plan. I can't stress enough to you the importance of actually doing that. So even within our training program, when people leave NERT, we don't know if they follow through on that. Um, I just heard Malin say this morning 17% of people actually consider themselves ready with those two things. So 17% is a pretty low number, and I think we as a city can do better, and that means us as individuals. So I built my kit two years ago, so I didn't want to be speaking without actually having done it, and it's time to revisit, right? It's time to replace some things in my kit. So there's a constant reminder and moving with this, this disaster preparedness thing. Um, some people, it triggers for them, oh, they get pregnant. Oh, well, I have somebody else in mind to think about. Or... Their, their parents get elderly. Oh, I'm going to give them a disaster kit for Christmas. But whatever it is that spurs you into getting more involved in the conversation, the NERT training is built upon personal preparedness first. And then we give skills in cribbing and mechanical advantage, in search and rescue, in first uh, uh, disaster medicine. Um, first aid is for the Red Cross. But in disaster medicine, in teamwork and a component. And all of that till we get to team is, again, skills that you can use individually. You can also apply them to assisting the team, but really we focus on what it is that you can do for yourself first and then your immediate neighbors. And then we teach this crazy thing called incident command system. We teach about how to communicate with the fire department, which is not run to your nearest station and knock on the door. It's really about trying to maximize getting the most help to the greatest number of people when our resources are overwhelmed, when all 300 of us that are on duty that day awaiting recall of the additional resources are put in use, how do you communicate what your individual needs are to the fire department? So we cover that in the training program. And we have a big hands-on component where you get to practice the skills, we always have advanced training opportunities in that incident command. We have additional drills where you can practice using the skills that, that you've learned in the training. And we communicate primarily by email with graduates of the program. And we ask that people continue with some of their skills every two years to renew and stay with the program. Um, but in keeping with this summit, NERT is a community building program. It is neighbors reaching out to each other. Once you graduate from the program, it is about you staying involved in your community. It is about you, even if it's just an email group with your neighborhood, communicating with each other what the plans are, staying in touch with each other. The fire department will continue to support the teams with um, hopefully by next week supplying some equipment that you can respond with. 
with uh, flyers and information that you can give to your neighbors and that you can hand out. But the team aspect of NERT really is the community. So I just invite all of you to keep that in mind today as we're all talking. Jamie. <laughs> Hi, my name is Jamie Lopez. Um, I'm the NERC coordinator for Hayes Valley, if any of you are familiar with that neighborhood. Um, before I start off on my rant, I wanted to acknowledge that most of what I'm going to talk about um, was built and developed with a neighboring coordinator in the Lower Hay by the name of Kathy Ober, who was here at the morning session, but she's not here today. So anything I say give her equal credit for, the, for what works and what doesn't work and things like that. But, um, so I'm going to start from the assumption that you've either gotten some kind of training or you've decided that you're going to begin outreach in your neighborhood. And for us, where that really started was at, at, at a very at basis of zero. There was no active coordinator in our neighborhood at the, in neighborhoods at the time, and um, we just decided to take it on. Um, so our first priority was really just to find a way of getting the information out. How do we connect with people in the neighborhood? Where are the places that we can go to? What are the resources that already exist? So we actually started off with uh, the farmer's market in our neighborhood, getting a free table there from the guy who organized it and just giving out information. Um, that led to other connections. You meet people from the local neighborhood associations while you're doing that. You uh, meet people from faith-based groups, from community-based groups, all these kinds of different organizations, whatever each neighborhood has that's unique to itself, where people congregate, work together, and, and associate. Um, and so that just led to a domino effect of all these different areas in which we could go out, talk to people, and sort of spread the message of preparedness and also, uh, I guess, communicate the different resources that are available throughout the city. Um, we developed programs that were specific to our neighborhood um, through the neighborhood associations, through community-based organizations, and through faith-based organizations. We sort of talked to people, found out what their interests were, found out how they were charted and what kind of information they needed to go ahead and start um, getting their memberships prepared. Um, and the first thing we did, of course, because we're NERT, is we encouraged the NERT training. The NERT training works because it trains you how to take care of yourself and your family, but then beyond that, it also helps you to basically engage within a wider neighborhood response to any kind of disaster that happens within the city. Um, and then second of all, we encourage people to prepare a disaster preparedness kit. I'm sure you've all heard a lot about this today, but the buzzword seems to be mitigation, and there's a good reason for that because it's totally true. Every person who has a kit for themselves and their family mitigates the amount of the impact not only on themselves and their family, but then also on the resources in your neighborhood, in the resources in the wider city. And then subsequent to a disaster, it also mitigates the impact on the city and how quickly we, we recover from that disaster. So it really is an important thing that even if you can't get trained, either through Red Cross or through NERF or any other resource, at the very least, make sure you have a kit for yourself and your family and a communication plan of how you're going to get in touch with each other, either after or days after or whatever. Um, the next thing we did was we had meetings with 
Erica and our local police chief, Captain Kevin Dillon, and we talked a lot about safety issues. And we said, well, you know, what, what are the things that we need to know about what not just the fire department needs from us and doesn't need from us after a disaster, but uh, how, to, how to support you, what we can rely on you for, count on you for, and what we can't count on you for. And the answer was pretty similar to what it's been in a lot of uh, these situations, which is, you know, we don't know if we're going to be there for you. So through those discussions, we realized that we needed to come up with sort of a more decentralized plan. And so we developed what we call the block captain program. And our goal was to have one NERT person and one safe person trained on every block. And that way, it again brings it back down to what Erica was talking about, this neighbor to neighbor. It's someone who's familiar to you who's going to be knocking on your door. It's someone who is more likely to know that there's a senior citizen who lives in the corner unit that only speaks Russian or that has a neighbor next door that uses a motorized wheelchair. Now, neither of those people may need immediate assistance, but, you know, say the senior who only speaks Russian might feel kind of isolated and it's going to be looking for a familiar face to connect with them in all the chaos that happens after the, an event. And then the person who, needs a, who uses a motorized wheelchair may just need someone to help them get their battery charged in a, a couple days after the event. So these kind of things, decentralizing it, making it so everybody can kind of contribute their own little piece to it. You already probably know the neighbors in your neighborhood, and you already probably are going to notice people who maybe don't belong in your neighborhood <laughs> and who are wandering around after an event. So it's, again, it's sort of like exploiting you know, a very San Francisco characteristic, which is neighbor-to-neighbor -neighbor communication, neighbor-to-neighbor -neighbor interest and support, and things like that. Um, one of the other uh, questions we were asked to respond to today was to talk about some of the lessons we've learned in this kind of um, organizing. And over the past couple years, um, there's two things that have come up for me uh, most often, and that's one, play well together, which means <laughs> There's, there's many different organizations that are going to have a, available resources, have different training resources, and some, yes, there's going to be some overlap, but everybody brings something unique to the table. So play well together, work with those different disaster preparedness groups, everybody exploit their strengths, and at the same time, don't waste your time and energy trying to reinvent the wheel. You know, I, if I'm going to get shelter training, I'm going to go to Red Cross to get shelter training. If I want disaster response training in search and rescue and how to prepare, I'm going to go to NERT. But I'm not going to try and make all these different people do the same thing, you know, for me at the same time. Um, the other thing is uh, to partner, 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 partner. Take advantage of all the resources that are already established in your neighborhood. And again, that comes back to the neighborhood associations, community-based organizations, faith-based organizations. A lot of these groups are already chartered to have some kind of disaster response plan, but maybe they just don't have the information. Maybe they need to some, somebody like you to take point. Maybe they need just somebody to communicate with whenever it is they're going to start talking to their constituency or their memberships about that kind of thing. And then finally, the key thing to remember for, or that how Kathy and I have always visualized this, is that none of this is going to be done in isolation. And I think that's something that's really good about this, um, this whole event, this today is that all of these things are going to be interdependent and emergencies have a way of just sort of amplifying what already exists in your neighborhood. If you have safety issues, both the strengths and the weaknesses, those are going to become that much more pronounced, the good and the bad, after a disaster hits. 
So you can't just look at it as, well, the neighborhood association is also my link to a constituency to get people NERT trained or to get people Red Cross trained. It's also something you're going to want to take a look at because they're probably dealing with those safety issues in their neighborhood, and you're going to want to be informed about them so that you can respond to them, you can prepare for them, and you can work with those neighborhood associations to have sort of a management plan, if you can call it that, because obviously you don't know what's going to happen, but some kind of response that you hope to affect after the disaster. Um, and at the same time, too, the other thing is those resources are also the people in those, in those neighborhood organizations, community-based organizations, et cetera. Those people are also going to be people that pe people in the neighborhood are already looking to as leaders. And so after a disaster, again, this is back to the chaos and the comfort zone, they're going to be looking to those people for direction. So you, at the very least, want to make sure that your information and your message gets across to those people so that they are, in turn, able to educate, to lead, to manage, to help you and support you once you're trying to deal with an, an issue after it happens. So. Um, my name is Madeline Mackey, and I'm with the American Red Cross. And I've been on staff with the American Red Cross for about four months. I've been a volunteer for over five years. And I started with the Red Cross because, a lot, like many of you, during that dreadful day back in September of 2001, I was sitting in front of my TV, and I was feeling helpless, and I was feeling hopeless. And I said, if something ever happened in my community, I didn't want to feel that way. I wanted to be able to go out and lend a hand and to be able to help and to make a difference. But I knew I needed training because what they were saying is that everybody was showing up to the disaster site, but they were getting in the way because they couldn't help. They didn't have the training. They didn't have the skills. So I wanted to have those skills. So I went to my neighborhood Red Cross, and I received disaster training. And I got training in shelter management and case management and damage assessment and... I said, great, I'm ready for the big disaster. And the Red Cross said, no, 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 Madeline, you're ready for any disaster now. And they handed me a hard hat and a flashlight and, a, and some papers, and they said, now go forth and help your community. And what would happen is at 2 o'clock in the morning, my phone would ring, and a family will have suffered a disaster, um, whether it was a fire or a roof collapse or a flood, and we would go out and we would provide shelter, and we'd provide clothing and mental health needs, and we'd provide food. And this happened weekly. This happened every day. There were some nights I would be on call, and I would have four or five call-outs in one night. There were some weeks that nothing happened at all. But I was going out, and I was giving back to my community. And after a while, my disaster manager said to me, they're like, okay, Madeline, with all this experience, you know, you're, you're getting up there. You're a team leader now. You're going to be a shelter manager, and when we have the big earthquake, you are going to be running the airport hangar shelter or the stadium shelter. And I said, oh, really, Charles? Is that, is that what you want me to do? And Charles says, that's what you're going to do. And I thought about that, and I went home, and I said, well, wait a minute. How am I going to be able to leave my home to go be able to run a shelter? Because I need to make sure my apartment is safe and secure and my cat is safe and secure. So I decided I was going to prepare my building, my apartment building, 14 units, and I went out to Safeway, and I got um, gallons of water. And water's always on sale for a dollar somewhere. So I brought the water back, and I put up flyers all over, the all over the building, and I said, okay, come to Madeline's apartment, and you're going to get a free prize, and you're going to get some preparedness training. And I thought, great, everybody's going to show up. And two people showed up. 
but I knew that this was too important to just say, okay, I tried my best and I'm done. So the next weekend I posted more flyers and I baked cookies and I baked brownies <laughs> and I kept knocking on people's doors and saying, this is really important, you need to attend this. And what happened was we had a little trimmer, you know, those little trimmers every now and then that people have and you go around and you say, did you feel it? Did you feel it? And we had a trimmer on a Saturday night. And Sunday morning, everybody knocked on my door and said, we're here for our disaster training. And we were able to get our building trained. And if they didn't make the preparedness training, we still went to their door and said, you know, we're sorry you couldn't make it. I'm Madeline. I'm with the Red Cross. Here's a gallon of water. Here's the information you need to prepare your family for the disaster because this was too important to let them ignore it. So then after a while, um, I decided I was going to prepare my work because all my coworkers knew that I was a volunteer with the Red Cross and I worked at Berkeley Repertory Theater over in the East Bay and they would all joke and say, okay, when we have the earthquake, Madeline, we're all coming to your house. And I said, I, I don't have enough food and water for all of you. I said, you need to make your own disaster kits. So I started to do trainings at work and then I started to do trainings at my church and like just like all of you sitting here, the Red Cross sent me to a summit. And I was sitting there, and someone stood up and started talking about this new program in the Bay Area called Prepare Bay Area. And the goal of Prepare Bay Area was to prepare one million residents for the earthquake. And it wasn't Red Cross prepares Bay Area. It was simply Prepare Bay Area, whether it was the fire department, whether it was me as a volunteer going out and talking to my community, whether it was you doing it yourself, it was about everyone getting together and preparing our community. And eventually the Red Cross approached me because they found out about this little, this little volunteer that was going around and banging on people's doors and demanding that they all get prepared. And they said, well, Madeline, why don't you come on staff, come on board and do it officially. So I joined the staff about five months ago to go out and get the preparedness message across. And we're doing that with a campaign called, What Do We Have to Do to Get Your Attention? And some of you have seen those postcards that are in the back of the room that show Market Street after an earthquake. And everyone keeps asking me, when was this picture taken? This picture was taken tomorrow. And the question is, are you ready? How many of you have your disaster kits? That's good. We can do better. 83% of the Bay Area is not prepared for a disaster. So that's what this is about. It's about talking to each other and figuring out how you can do that. Whether it's you have a disaster kit making party at your house. Whether it's you invite the Red Cross to come out and do the free preparedness training. We'll bring out the instructor. We'll bring out the materials. All you have to do is gather your neighbors. Maybe you invite us to your church group. Maybe you simply tell your neighbors go online and both the city and the Red Cross has free online training that you can take. There are so many different avenues that you can take that first step to getting your community ready and prepared. Um, one of our partners in that preparedness is PG&E, and they gave us a million dollars to go forth and prepare our communities, particularly our vulnerable populations, our seniors, our children, our low-income, um, English as a second language, to reach out to all of those that specifically will really need our help during times of disasters. Um, personally, the plan came into effect um, during Katrina. My family is from New Orleans. My parents were born and raised and educated there. Um, my grandparents are buried there. My sisters lived there. 
And back during Hurricane Andrew, my sister Cheryl did not evacuate until the very, very last minute. She didn't take the, uh, what do they call it, recommended evac evacuation. She didn't, the voluntary evacu evacuation. She didn't go then. She waited. And she got stuck in a traffic jam, and her car ran out of gas, and she had two kids in the back. And that, she was scared to death after that. So after that, when they would say voluntary evacuation, or they would even say hurricane warning for New Orleans, she was gone. She would pack up the kids and the car and the dog and the valuable papers, and she was out the door heading to Dallas, Texas, where we have relatives. And she did that every single time. And there were times where she would get about 75 miles outside of town, and then her phone would ring, and they would say, Cheryl, turn around. They lifted up the evacuation. Come on home. And they kept saying, Cheryl, stay. Come to our hurricane party. It's never going to happen. They're always saying New Orleans is going to flood, but it's never going to happen. And she said, you know, I was wrong this time, but I only need to be right once. And during Hurricane Katrina, when they called that, that voluntary evacuation, she packed up the kids in the car and the dog and the valuable papers, and she drove to Aunt Shirley's house. And when the levees broke, we knew she was safe. We knew exactly where she was at. She had her disaster kit. She had her family. The only one missing was our nephew, who decided he wanted to stay behind and keep an eye on the house. But he knew his out-of-state contact. He knew where his family was. He knew how to get there. So when he was able to evacuate, he was able to get in contact with us. He was first aid and CPR trained. He knew how to take care of himself. And he's safe, and he's reunited with his family now. All of you can take those steps and those actions. And that's what we're here today, to talk about how you as a community to get, can get together and to become prepared. We're going to be here all day. If you have any questions, please don't hesitate to ask at the end of the panel. <laughs> Good afternoon. Can you hear me okay? Good. Uh, my name is Michael Liao. I'm from Nikos Chinese Health Coalition, and I'm here to talk to you about the Chinatown Disaster Response Plan. This is an example of uh, an effort uh, between public sectors, private, community-based, faith, um, local community members, an effort to really come together and to respond to a very unique need. Um, let me tell you first a little bit about Nikos. Nikos is a public, private, and community partnership of nearly 40 health and human service organizations in San Francisco and throughout the Bay Area. So NICOS primarily engages in activities such as research, education, trainings, uh, advocacy, and coalition building. So we're actually really in a good position to bring all those pieces together. Um, after the 1989 uh, earthquake, uh, NICOS and various of its member organizations realized that there's something needed to be done for the Chinatown residents. We were noticing a lot of things, such as um, uh, structural damages to older buildings. We had a lot of older seniors, Chinese seniors, who were afraid to leave their homes, and there was a lot of linguistic and cultural gaps that, uh, that, were, that existed. And so, as a result, you know, some of our concerns, uh, you know, I already mentioned a little bit, but you know, one of the facts is that Chinatown is one of the most densely populated neighborhoods in San Francisco. In Chinatown, we also have many SRO buildings. Who knows what SRO is? Okay, it's a single room occupancy, right? So it's not uncommon for an entire family or even generations of a family to reside in one small room. So when we see these SRO buildings in Chinatown, it's not uncommon to have hundreds of people just on a single floor of a building, all sharing one exit, one emergency exit. 
so it presents real challenges for evacuations and, and, and such um, rescue efforts. Other things have to re related to the structural conditions of many of, of, of Chinatown's buildings. Many of Chinatown's buildings, particularly the older ones, are of unreinforced masonry that have very high potential of collapse in, in the event of a major earthquake. And then finally, you know, to the heart of it, there's just a couple of, um, you know, um, the, the reasons why there really needs to be a specific plan, a neighborhood response, is really of who lives in Chinatown, of the socio-demographic characteristics of the residents of Chinatown. Chinatown has a disproportionately large uh, older adult population. For example, actually we have um, more than 30% of our of Chinatown residents are 65 years of age or older. This is more than twice the rate of San Francisco general population. Um, so some of the issues related to that obviously is how do we get the frail uh, homebound seniors, how do we help them uh, to evacuate? How do we even find out that they're okay? Um, and, and, and another thing have to do with linguistic and cultural issues. Uh, a significant percentage of San Francisco, uh, Chinatown residents are what we call linguistically isolated. This is a US census term, meaning that no one in the household who are four, age, uh, age 14 or older speak English well. So what this means is that you know, all our, uh, our response plans have to keep in mind that bilingual, bicultural um, factor all the signages, all the volunteer workers, crisis workers need to be able to also communicate in Cantonese and Mandarin. Our trainings that we do have to be also conducted in multi-languages. So because of these various unique issues of Chinatown, uh, Nikos convened a uh, preparedness committee that was composed of various organizations in Chinatown. Includes, um, you know, the, the, we were fortunate to actually have three medical facilities in Chinatown, Chinese Hospital, we have Public Health Center 4, which is a, a, a government uh, facility, obviously, and, and we also have um, Northeast Medical Services, NEMS. So these three organizations are part of our, our response network. We also have the senior care organizations such as Self-Help for the Elderly, Unlock Senior Health. We have the tenant housing services such as Ch um, Chinatown Community Development Center that you know actually um, manage many of the SRO buildings. Um, and then we have um, various other social service organizations that provide actually a wide array of social human services that, um, that will come in handy in, 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 in uh, the aftermath of a disaster. So all these organizations come together. We meet uh, once a month. And so some of the things that we've been working on, we, we've been doing this, as I mentioned, right after the 1989 earthquake, since 1990, and for some time we were doing that unfunded. Currently we have funding from the Department of Emergency Management. <laughs> Um, to to uh, sustain our efforts. So some of the things that, and, and actually PG&E was one of uh, our original founders too that, that got us started on, on, on our efforts. So um, Some of the things that we work on, one of them is actually to maintain and to continue to update our neighborhood disaster response plan. We had been developing a plan and currently are updating it and c continuing to revise it. The plan basically outlines how the various organizations within our network will work together, will coordinate, and also to consolidate their resources and efforts in an event of a disaster. The plan also defines the various roles that the agencies will play, um, what roles will the medical facilities play, and how the three of them will consolidate their resources, how the social services who can provide crisis management, crisis counseling, what those organizations' roles are. 
Um, also, important factor, obviously, is how we can stay in communication uh, in the aftermath. Um, it, uh, with the assumption, of course, that in a major earthquake, there may be no power and no working landlines and no cell, cell phone service. So uh, one of the things that we did is to purchase some CB radios for some short-range communication and ham radio for more um, for um, our central system to communicate with uh, OE, uh, OE, uh, DEM and other organizations. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Um, and so, you know, um, and, and the, the plan also identifies potential shelter areas in the local area, also designates open spaces. For example, we designated Portsmouth Square, which is an open park with garage underneath, as the facility that we'll use to per perform medical triage. And so, because it's a wide open space. Um, the plan also essentially enters into MOU with these various organizations that are in our preparedness and response network. And secondly, you know, another activity that we've been working on is uh, in conjunction with San Francisco uh, Fire Department, NERT, to conduct trainings. And so we've been providing trainings for the local residents and also for um, our agency workers. And we actually also advocated and helped establish for the first time some Cantonese language workshops. I mentioned previously, just a minute ago, that a majority of the residents are not English proficient. So this kind of resource is very important. Um, and finally, we've also been involved in doing some community-wide drills. This is an opportunity where we can take a plan that's on paper and put it into physical practice. Um, these are neighborhood-wide, uh, large-scale uh, disaster drills, where we actually had volunteers with the help of um, the fire department, volunteers who are moulage to uh, simulate real-life injuries. So they would, you know, they would come in to our Portsmouth Square, looking like they have various forms of trauma and injuries, and our team would be there to triage. That's also when we put our communication strat uh, systems uh, to, to the test using our ham radio, our CB radios to communicate with one another to be able to find out what the capacities at each medical facilities are or where to refer folks for uh, different kinds of emergency services. Um, so, you know, we used to do this probably about twice a year in the past. Uh, we, because of some constraints we have, currently we're only doing tabletop discussions and drills, but we're hoping in the future to do more of these real-life, um, large-scale uh, community drills. Uh, just before I, I close, I just want to share with you a couple of other things that we're working on for the future. Uh, one of those having to do with um, trying to secure and purchase some food and water supplies for the community. One of the reality is that we know uh, a majority of San Francisco's population, and if you think about the Chinatown community, may, very few probably would have enough food and water supplies to last three days. Uh, for many of our SRO residents, you know, one of the issues is even if they could, where are they going to store the food and water in the cramped spaces that they already live in? So one of the plans is to have food bars, energy bars, or water filtration system that are purchased to be located throughout Chinatown area for, for, the, for, for those in need. Um, and then also one of the other things is to work with the city and local businesses. What we found in 1989 is that when folks try to access restaurants, uh, market stores to access their food supplies, they were denied. So we're trying to set up a system, an agreement, working with the local businesses to um, em empower them to distribute their foods with the promise that they would be reimbursed by the city for, for their products and for their, for their services. So those are some things that are, are 
work in progress and that we're, we're continuing to perfect or to, to make our plan better. And, um, and I'll be happy to answer any more questions you have afterwards. Um, hi, my name is Judy Choi and I'm with the San Francisco Department of Animal Care and Control. Um, I am on the committee, the disaster committee with our shelter, as well as five other partner organizations in San Francisco. We meet regularly and we have been meeting for actually for the past 10 years. And I've been with um, Animal Care and Control for 15. What we talk about in a larger scale is what happens to our pets in San Francisco when there is a disaster. In a smaller scale, the agency, our department, already responds to disasters, animal-related emergencies. So if your apartment building has a fire and you happen to have pets on the property, animal care and control will respond, and we will house your animal for a holding period so that you can get yourself situated and then find a more per permanent um, home situation for your pets but at least that helps you out in the short run. So when we look at the whole picture of when there is a disaster in San Francisco, how are we gonna house the amount of pets that we have in the city? If we think that there are at least two pets in every household, where are all these animals gonna go? So the first thing we wanna tell you is as you're preparing yourself for your disaster kit, you also need to prepare a disaster kit for your pets as well. And when Hurricane Katrina, what we learned out of that situation, and they were told to keep their pets in their house, fill your bathtub with water, rip up you know, your big bags of dog food and leave it out for your pets. Same thing you know, with your cats. And leave them at home. We are not telling you that for San Francisco. We are telling you to take your pets with you. Do not leave them at home. Because we will provide as many housing as we can for your pets and for you to stay with your pets. We will provide adjunct shelters in human shelters so that you can stay with your pets. Because if you are well prepared for yourself and you are well prepared for your pets, then that leaves Animal Care and Control, a very small city agency with 40 personnel, to help with the other animals that don't have immediate, immediate care. So what can you do to prepare for your pets? So your kit will have a week of food and water, your supplies, a picture, form of identification, as well as medical records, and the most important thing is for reunification is to have your pets microchipped. Microchip is a permanent form of ID which is injected underneath the skin in the back between the two shoulder blades. We use a scanner, we pick up these unique set of numbers and they will identify you as the owner of this pet. That is the best way for us to help reunite you and your pet. You can do it on a dog, you can put a microchip in your cat. You can put it on a rabbit. You can put it on a bird. Okay, so we can't stress enough how important it is to microchip your pet. And if you can check with your vet 
for microchipping, or if you would like to get your pet microchip for $10, we will have Pet Pride Day in Golden Gate Park on October 28th at Sharon Meadows. We meet and we discuss with the San Francisco Veterinary Medical Association on what part the vets will play. So there are about 25 veterinary services in San Francisco. Each of them have agreed on what services they will provide for San Francisco. Also, we have our other Bay Area shelters that will also come and help when we have a disaster, as well as we will go and help a Bay Area, you know, when they have a disaster. So we are able to, and hopefully, have enough help where we are able to take care of every single animal in San Francisco. Thank you. Well, good afternoon. Um, Michael Peterson. I'm with Pacific Gas and Electric. Uh, I'm the Director of Corporate Security and Emergency Planning for, uh, for PG&E. As I mentioned to the group this morning, my timing was just outstanding uh, to do this presentation in front of residents that are actual PG&E customers because the front page of the Chronicle talked about what? Your rates are going up at PG&E, and here I am. So I also mentioned in the, the crowd this morning, uh, don't take a shot at me. I'm just the lonely security director that's trying to make a living and uh, trying to get things together from the standpoint of emergency planning. Probably the other question or the other thought you would throw at me is, why is PG&E or why is PG &E here today representing uh, or discussing disasters when we probably create and cause about 50% of disasters with our outages? But that's another thing we're working on, and I'm confident that we will get that fixed within a certain amount of time. But I think the real key point that I want to make here as a representative for PG&E, and I think it was touched on by, by some of the speakers, is that as an organization, as a company, we real, realize the importance of emergency planning, disaster planning, disaster recovery, and we recognize it from the standpoint it's a grassroots operation for us as a company to restore power, either gas uh, or electric, that we need to have folks ready, planned, and engaged in emergency planning. It makes our job so much easier to take care of. If it isn't there, the crisis, the confusion, the um, impacts will slow us down from the standpoint of getting people back with lights on and the heat going. So that's really a port, uh, an important point that I like to make. And how do we try to accomplish that? Well, as an organization, uh, as a private company, obviously we do have some additional funds, and we try to infuse those funds into the community from the st standpoint of are they ready and are they prepared, and how can we get them ready and prepared? As mentioned, we did give a million dollars to, to the Red Cross. We also take a very active role in the NERT training. We provide a lot of additional resources, including funding to help them. I was surprised about involved with Michael's group, which is another outstanding program, uh, which again is a way for us to engage in emergency planning, disaster recovery, from the standpoint of things will be better when we get there. As an organization, we also provide a lot of what's called public safety training. That's if you have a wire down or a gas leak, what do you do as, as a citizen, as a neighbor, as a community? And we provide that training from the standpoint of safety. That's the bottom line of what we're trying to do. 
is to create a very safe environment. Those folks are available to provide that training across the, uh, the city here, across our service territory. But we, again, like to go to grassroots. We provide it to emergency responders, local law enforcement, fire services. We also provide it to, to community groups themselves. And if it is a community group, either a safe group and or a NERC group, we will provide that training for individuals. The other, as an organization, for us to take care of business during an emergency, for us to take care of your needs to get power back on, we've got to have extensive and very proactive and very aggressive emergency response planning for our own employees. We've got 20,000 employees, and they need to make sure that their family is in good order, that their belongings or residents or all those things, communication pieces, are all in place before they'll come back to us to work to, to get your power back on. So we aggressively provide training to our employees. We tell them, force them, put together your go bags, your go kits, put two, three together, one in your company vehicle, one at home, one in your family vehicle. So that's another aggressive approach we're trying to do to be prepared for the disaster, for the emergency. We also, again, as a first responder, and if you think about PG&E, yes, we are a first responder because we've got to get the power back on for law enforcement, for EMS, for fire service, so they can complete their duties and jobs. So as a first responder, we engage in the, uh, uh, the EOCs, the county EOCs, the, the policy groups for the cities and counties throughout our service ter territory. We're very active here in San Francisco, where we as a company can be told what is the priority of the policy folks here, the decision makers of where we turn the power on first, where do we put the gas lines back in place? And that's something, again, we're trying to work together as a team for the community so we're prepared and ready to go. And prior to my life here at pg and &E, I spent 32 years in law enforcement. I actually retired from the California Highway Patrol. And I had opportunities, obviously, to be involved in, in many emergencies. And one that really stuck with me that I'd like to share is I was brought over to uh, the Cypress structure during the Loma Prieta earthquake, and I was actually the incident commander for 12-hour shifts at night for about three weeks. And when I first got there, the night of the, uh, the earthquake, um, as I'm looking around trying to sift through the crisis and the, the fear and the concern, one of the things that really stood out was what I saw with people from the community, people from West Oakland wanting to help the folks that were stuck on the Cypress structure, but other, at the same time wanted to help their neighborhood. But one of the things that was real evident, they were like, like rats in a maze. They didn't have a clue of what they needed to do, but they wanted to engage. And that's why I think this type of, of uh, involvement in the community, the NERD training, uh, the training working with your neighborhoods is so critical, so important for, for everyone to get back on track and recover from a disaster. So I applaud you for being here, and I continue to ask that you stay with it because on occasion it can be frustrating to energize people to say it's coming when it hasn't been here for a while. So thank you. So I want to say thank you to our panelists. Um, you heard a, a great variety of ways that you can take this information and apply it in your community from, you know, knocking on your neighbor's doors with information on personal preparedness to getting the Red Cross to come out and do a training to organizing a NERT training in your community. There's a variety of things that, um, that are available out there, all the way up to what Nikos is doing at the Chinatown Disaster Preparedness Committee. I mean, that's something they've been doing that for 15 years, and so they're, they're a lot farther ahead than a lot of other neighborhoods, but it is an example 
example of what can be accomplished when you bring in a variety of community partners. Um, Jamie touched on uh, the, this concept of knowing people's names. Um, you know, Robert Putnam, the guy who did the Bowling Alone book, his follow-up book is called Better Together, where he actually um, shows evidence that directly links a uh, stronger community with neighbors knowing each other by their first name. So he shows that there's a reduction in teen pregnancy, more kids graduating from high school, less crime, all tied to the number of neighbors that know each other by their first name. And so a lot of what we're doing here with the Neighborhood Empowerment Network um, is sort of trying to build on existing social networks, it's in our case around the issue of disaster preparedness. Um, you know, as much as we can do now, it's, it's, we're all going to be better off after a disaster. Um, we have some great questions that have been handed out, and um, I think we have a microphone. I'd like, I mean, we're going to have our panelists answer them, but it would be great if people have things to add. Um, maybe I could actually have someone, or maybe I'll just go down there. Or maybe, yeah, would you? Okay. So, let's see. Our first question. This is one actually a couple of people have this question. Are there a list of disaster shelters available to the public so family plans can be made? And I will answer that question. Um, so the city has identified um, over 65 shelters in San Francisco. Um, they're primarily in um, community centers, public schools, various facilities. We do have that list. Um, we don't necessarily put that information out widely to the public because one of our major concerns is that people are going to start showing up to shelters before they've been inspected or before they're actually set up to be shelters. So um, you can contact our office and we will tell you where the nearest shelter might be, but you wouldn't want your family emergency plan to say that we're all going to meet at the Marina Middle School after a disaster because Marina Middle School might not be safe. Or Marina Middle School might be the, we might, the priority might be to use that as a triage area or the NERT staging area. So it's something that, you know, it's, you can know in advance, but we really encourage people not to count on any of those places and not to self-deploy to, to locations that have already been identified as a shelter. Did you have a follow-up to that one? Oh, you have to use your... The reason I asked that question is that uh, people are going to be at different places at different times of the day. Mm -hmm. And our son's going to be at school. We'll probably be at two different jobs. So if the home is demolished, we want to at least know where we can go as part of our family plan rather than just like, whoa. And downstairs, I was told by NERD, uh, Red Cross, as well as 72 uh, Hours, that, that they don't give that list out because for that reason, that mm -hmm. it might be down. But at least it gives people an idea of where they can go to meet. And the, uh, on that air, there also mm -hmm. was, can we go to fire departments? I know they're going to be kind of overwhelmed and what have you, but is that a place where people can go to, you know, to try to connect with people that are maybe across the bay or something like that, trying to get home? Or? Do you want to check that, Erica? Do you want to? So it, we, within our training, um, the designation of your sites is not dependent on a fire department. It's not dependent on communication at all. 
It's really, it's one site is in front of your home and the other is a secondary site, which might be like your aunt's home if, you know, if they're accessible. And again, it's about building a network. So it's about building a network of people. So at the school, if your child is at school, the schools have a mandate to provide for them until you're able to get there. So it could be something that you organize. We'll either meet at home or if home is not, is not available, then we'll meet at the school. So you really want your sites not to be dependent on communication and not to be dependent on services, which both the shelter and the fire department are services. Yeah, and, and that is absolutely not the role of the no. fire department and so after a disaster. So one of the things that when NERT staging areas and your neighbors are NERTs, that is the basis of this, is trained individuals in your neighborhood, is to post a resource board where people can stick notes. That's one of the parts of our training is that your NERT staging area, which are the sites are available on our website, so get to know who the neighbors are in your neighborhood that are trained and then get trained so you can help them build the critical mass. And that would be an area where they would just stick up a board or use, designate a phone pole where people can, can stick notes about who's okay and, and who needs to be. Madeline, do you want to talk about the out-of-area contact? Sure. Um, as we discovered with Katrina and my nephew, that's where the out-of-area contacts become so very, very important for communications because no one, you couldn't call a New Orleans area code. It just wasn't happening. But he was able to reach myself in California and our aunt in Dallas, Texas on a landline. And how many people like know their relatives' phone numbers now? And I'm not meaning picking up your cell phone and clicking mom. I mean actually know the numbers. The Red Cross and the brochures that you have have a little wallet card. And in that wallet card, is your emergency contact plan where you write down a landline phone number of someone. We're also discovering in disasters that text messaging works and emails work. So having that information written down, having it in your son's backpack, having it in your purse, having it in the car, having it in multiple places so that you can communicate with your out-of-state contact and through that you coordinate your reunification. So you know what, you, you have to speak into the microphone because um, yeah. To the booklet here, it, it says that all these communication apparatuses will probably be down. So how are you supposed to contact so people? You still you use every method available. You use on your pile of rubble that is your house, unfortunately, there's no reason why you can't put a note up there and say this is where the family is at. You go to if when you can figure out when you're listening to your radio and the radios will tell you where the shelters are. The first thing we set up at shelters are communications and you can go there and you can get communications out. You just keep trying. You're right. It is going to be chaotic in the beginning. But you just have to keep trying. And you have, by having everyone's email written down, everyone's phone number written down, having that designated out-of-state contact, you just keep trying. Jamie? So, um, on a more basic level, remember pay phones? <laughs> we also, those are supposedly operating on a different system. They supply their own power as well as, as a signal. I'm not a technician, so don't quote me on that, but that's what I've heard. So we often also recommend to people to keep a uh, roll of quarters in their uh, go kits because you're probably not going to have any place to get change, you know, if the payphones do work. And there's probably going to be a huge line to use the payphones if all the communication towers are down and things like that. So, again, that's just another one of these, like, you know, as everybody said, we're going to be doing whatever we can, you know, 
there's not going to be a whole lot of things you can plan on being available but you can plan to be able to utilize those things whatever you find that is available so. I just wanted to add one comment. If you have a digital telephone system, when the electricity goes, that goes. Everything goes. If you have a landline, you still may be able to get out. Uh, and that's the most important thing is to have a landline. Old-fashioned rotary phone that doesn't exactly require right. electricity. To have a landline that does not depend on any of that. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, you know, they're also good if you have home security. But when we, I was back east when they had 9-11, it's very difficult. You cannot get your cell phone to work right. anyway. That's, that's very true. But especially if you've got a digital telephone and your, and your computers, depending on that, you, on cable, you're not going to be able to get anything through. No email, nothing. It's going to all go. Okay. I just wanted to say that. Thank you. Erica, do you want to say something? We have lots of questions. We will get to them all. Um, do you want to quickly say something about the NERT Block Captain program? I did because I wanted to really encourage you in building your network that as, uh, Cindy's from SAFE is in the back of the room and they offer SAFE blocks and that's a communication way to build a network on your block and we're tapping that resource with NERT and providing a Block Captain training for NERT that it will include the personal preparedness and partner with SAFE to teach about making that block communication plan. And that's going to increase your network and your ability to tell your children options for them in terms of finding you. Um, another question. What are some issues immigrants face in disaster preparedness and disasters, in emergency preparedness and disasters, and how can they be addressed? Do we have anybody on our panel that wants to speak to that? <laughs> Michael? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, hmm. Can you can you just Briefly repeat mm -hmm. the question again. What are some issues immigrants face in emergency preparedness and disasters, and how can they be addressed? So, I mean, I, right off the back, I can think about folks may, you know, want to be able to have um, a list of the documents that they need to keep with them, especially those who may be on work visas, who may not have documentation, um, who, 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 who may not have citizenship, um, uh, may be able to, to be able to, uh, to meet, meet that. Um, I mean, there are other barriers as well. For um, but I think you know, for during the initial emergency services, most services will be available to uh, without right. question of status. Uh, right? Yeah, so. no, I think especially in San Francisco, that immigrant status is not going to be an issue. I mean, and, and yeah, right. thank you. Thanks, Rory. Think of any other things? Uh, well, I do know the immigrant community has expressed us that. Uh, well, some representatives from the Mission District that service a lot of immigrants, that there just might be a fear that even my uniform might indicate to them that they would be turned in. And so I would like to welcome people who do have a better connection to know that getting NERT training does not go into anything that's connected with police, with turning in. There's no background check. There's no reporting of. But tr free training is available to immigrants and non-immigrants alike to, to connect to agencies where they are not afraid would be helpful for us. Does anybody in the audience want to speak to that specific issue? Okay. Um, do you conduct outreach in schools? Do you conduct outreach and trainings in public housing developments? And how do you work with Brack and Park? And I think this was a question specifically for NERT and the Red Cross. Yes. Yes, and yes. <laughs> um, with the schools, we have our Red Cross Youth Clubs, 
We also will just come out. There's no youth clubs. We'll come out and do the preparedness training or first aid and CPR training. We have what we call the one-minute announcements, where every day for one minute on the PA announcements, we do a preparedness message to get the school prepared. So, yes, we definitely do outreaches to schools, to the PTAs, um, to the churches, and any types of organizations. Um, we'll come out to your homes, neighborhood associations, communities. Basically, all we need to do for our free training is we need a room with 20 people. Everything else we'll take care of. And we have partnered with the Disaster Preparedness Coordinator for the Unified School District to um, train teachers as well as students. The students receive the 20 hours of volunteer credit um, if they take the training class. Um, and we are trying to start um, a teen NERT training program in the high schools. Um, the health and science requirement is somewhat of a fit, but whenever you add something to the school curriculum, you take something away. So it's a bit of a give and take. And Lincoln High School and Washington High School have been the two high schools that have uh, hosted NERT training for their high school students. And if any of you are parents or have connections with schools, please talk to the school principals, advocate. talk to the school board, and advocate for emergency preparedness. You know, if we can get every third grader, um, you know, trained in emergency preparedness and how to build a kit, they're going to go home and they're going to ask their parents, hey, where's our, where's our water stored? Or do we know how to turn off the gas? Or where are we going to meet after a disaster? So as much as you can, you know, be the voice for, for promoting that in the schools. Because the information, we have the information available, we just need help getting in the door. Jamie wanted to say I, oh, something, too. Go ahead. Well, just one more thing is that many of the NERT staging sites are rec and park sites, so we have an emergency permit on file with rec and park for use of those sites in the disaster. And in t also in terms of rec and park, um, the city, a lot, most, most of the rec and park employees are either have either gone through or are going through disaster shelter worker training through the Red Cross. So they are very tied into to this because we count on them. It's a very strong partner. Jamie. Um, I was going to say that same thing about the uh, park and rec, but then also someone said about housing developments. Yes. Yeah, again, I personally I would think it, it, that comes back to a neighborhood level. I mean, we've done the same thing. A lot of the developments have residence rooms. They also have residence meetings, and that's another opportunity for people to do outreach. It's another opportunity to get into, um, scheduled into those meetings and talk about disaster preparedness, talk about how to make a kit. There are many, many different quick, easy ways to, be, to bring that topic up in those meetings and get people aware. Did you have a follow-up question? Do you want to speak in the mic? Right. During the public housing developments, is there an effort to try to get kits to people as far as, you know, affording that and, and that sort of thing? That's a very good question. Um, there is a lot of challenges with giving out disaster supplies before a disaster. One is that they require constant rotating and updating. And two, we find that people use the supplies that are in the kits, which if you need them today, you know, then what are you going to do? You're going to use, you know, those batteries, those flashlights. Um, so we're, our focus has really been on preparedness issues. I mean, it doesn't cost any money to identify uh, an out-of-area contact or where you're going to meet up with your family members. Um, we have done some training with the Housing Authority um, in various facilities around the city. It was a, a partnership that our office did with the um, Red Cross. And one of the challenges really was, um, you know, people showing up. We did lots of advertising, and people didn't necessarily come to the, the presentations um, because it requires more than just putting up a sign, and it requires more, of a, more contact than our Department of the Red Cross actually has 
people in the, in the building have to sort of take some responsibility to encourage their neighbors to come to these trainings. So um, just a little another back to your question about disaster kits. Um, we do have a grant from the hospital council to um, to purchase some disaster buckets from the Red Cross. It's not very many, but our focus is really going to be on um, low-income families, specifically family child care providers. So we're looking at, at organized uh, you know, organized entities like daycare centers that are going to be responsible for vulnerable populations after a disaster and providing them supplies and hope that they'll be more likely, less likely to access those supplies before a disaster so that they'll be available after a disaster. So that's one of the ways we're addressing that. Did you have a follow-up to that? Uh, but you have to speak into the microphone. I, I think it's somewhat related. Um, you keep saying turn off the gas. Um, I've tried to get a hold of PG&E. A lot of the meters are fro have frozen uh, uh, nuts, or whatever you want to call it. I've tried to get the PG&E meter reader to look at the one in my house, and he says it's impossible to shut off. Um, how do we get PG&E to actually address the fact that a lot of the old meters that are in front of houses um, are not, you can't turn them off? Is this a plant question? No, excuse me. <laughs> you, you're right. And, and let me tell you, uh, the meter reader that you spoke to is probably not the contact person. Um, and I suggest, and this is not trying to brush you off, ma'am, but I strongly suggest that you call 1-800, the PG&E 1-800 number, and or if you do it online, pg&e.com. Because that is a potential safety issue, and the company is obligated to respond to that potential safety issue. So I'm not sure how many times this has occurred, but again, it's something that has to be fixed. Well, that's. I again encourage you to call the 1-800, yeah, but. Well, after, okay, after excuse after me, the after today, after we finish, I want you to come see me, and I'm going to take your name, and someone's going to call you. That's a promise. <laughs> All right. Okay. Um, how do you choose the safest place for your disaster kit? Very good question. Very good question. <laughs> San Francisco, that's a challenge. I mean, I think originally, you know, they said, okay, you know, bury it in a freestanding, you know, structure in your backyard. Well, how many of us have backyards in San Francisco? Um, do we have anybody on our panel that wants to take a stab at that one? Um, probably like many of you, I live in an apartment, and there's not that many places I can store my disaster kit. Honestly, I have it at a footlocker at the foot of my bed. Um, it's where I know I can get to it. It's, in, it's bright, it's packed up, um, and it's, hopefully I can, I'll be able to get to it. But if everything falls down, am I going to be able to get to it? Probably not. Um, you have to do the best you can with what you have. You, that interior wall in your house, that's the strongest support wall. You put it against there. You put it in a corner. You put it underneath a desk. Um, you protect it as best you can, and, and that's all that you can do. If you can put it in the yard, great. Um, some people say, oh, I have it in my garage. Well, I wouldn't necessarily keep it in a garage because that may not be the best, safest, and secure place. So you do the best you can with what you have. And it's one of the reasons that we recommend that people keep extra supplies at work and extra supplies in your car so that wherever you are, 
you will have access to something. I mean, having a sturdy pair of shoes in your car is going to be a big help if you wear dress shoes to work because you're not going to be driving your car after a disaster very likely after a big earthquake. So, S, have more than one. Yes. Um, okay. Michael. Yeah. How did Nikos arrange to get businesses reimbursed for distributing food and other supplies in the event of a disaster? And I know that's something that you haven't figured out yet, but do you want to speak to? Sure, we the had this question in the uh, morning session as well. But um, I think, you know, currently we're at the state where we're at right now, we're just um, trying to approach the businesses. And, but, you know, first, uh, before even before doing that extensively, just talking with the city to make sure that we can actually get the agreement to, to have them be able to be to get paid, and so I'm not sure there's not much more I can say besides right. that. And uh, the Red Cross kind of has the same thing. Like as I, as a volunteer, can walk into a Safeway and say, look, I'm going to commandeer your entire water supply and canned goods for this shelter I'm running, and I promise you we're going to pay you back. Um, what we've done with a lot of those businesses is we've gone and set up a written memorandum of understanding. So it is a written contract that, these, that we have with these vendors, your disaster leaders and our shelter managers have copies of these so that we can go in and say, it is okay, here's a document saying, first off, here's my identification saying that I am a Red Cross volunteer staff member, here's our memorandum of understanding, and so we're now gonna use your store, thanks. And I think it's really important in terms of bringing the business community into our community planning. Any small businesses that we have in the area, um, you know, it's it's a good idea. Any if there's any bus, any um, uh, like I'm blanking on that word, business associations, merchant, merchant associations in your area, <laughs> bring them in as you're as you're doing your emergency planning in your neighborhood and with your neighbors. I mean, they want to be community partners and building those relationships before a disaster. When you walk into your store, their store, and you're like, you know, look. We, have a, we need a lot of Band-Aids right over here. They're going to be a lot more likely to give you those Band-Aids if they know who you are before a disaster. So it's a good idea to start those relationships in advance. Um, is there a plan in place to use taxis and buses, buses to evacuate folks? Um, buses, yes. There's the, the city currently, in fact, uses Muni um, is one of our partners um, even for evacuating people in terms of, of house fires. Um, so yes, there is a plan to use buses. Um, we have not, um, taxis are not currently part of, our, our, of the city's plan, um, but there's not any reason that they couldn't be. So I think, you know, taxi commission is right next door to my office. So we'll go over there and see if they want to partner with us. Anyone else want to add anything? Okay. Um, so for San Francisco, is there a map that identifies shelters, nurse staging areas, and Red Cross, locations with emergency services? Um, so as I mentioned before, we do have a map of the city that shows all the shelters. Um, and NERT, on the NERT website, um, you can see where all the NERT staging areas are. And, um, you know, those are, NERT staging areas are, are outdoor spaces. So those areas are not going to have to be inspected before, um, before we start setting up services there or before NERT starts setting up services there. The shelters are going to have to be inspected before we can open a shelter. We're going to have to stock them with cots and water and medical supplies and staff. Um, so that information is a little bit. I just wanted to also remind you that the NERT staging area is your neighbors helping each other. Thank you. And so they are not the place to go to hi, show up with nothing to not help. They're the place where you go and and say, well, what I didn't can I quite do? get my training yet, but what can I do and how can I help? And if you do have a need, you should let them know that, but understand that you're approaching your neighbors who have had training and have had a conversation with each other and, and 
that's our limitation and our strength. And one of the things we really want to encourage people to do is to, to, you need to do a, a map for your own neighborhood because there are resources that are not, you know, resources like shelters or nurse staging areas that are going to be that are going to be key. It's helpful to know if someone in your, you know, one of your neighbors was in the military and has logistics training or has, you know, used to be a nurse and, um, you know, has first aid training. I mean, those are the kind of things that you start to identify before a disaster. So you know who has what skills, um, you know, who has a generator just happens to have a generator. There's someone in my building who has a generator. It wouldn't power a whole building, but it's good to know that he has a generator. Milk Why, shakes. I don't know. Hmm? Milkshakes. Milkshakes. Make those milkshakes. Did you have a follow-up to that question or a comment to that question? I think it was the anniversary of the um, um, 06 earthquake. There was a lot of information going on. There was a map that came out, and it showed which fire hydrants had something mm -hmm. where you The emergency drinking water map that the Public Utilities Commission put out. There is a emergency drinking water um, map, and it, you can get to it from the PUC's website as well as from 72hours.org under the water. Um, and it basically shows um, that map. They have to reprint if any of you have it. Um, the, the fire hydrant that they show on that map is incorrect. They, they, the locations are correct. They did reprint. They did, so okay, they good. But the picture is, is not accurate. So, um, Can they, you still get that map? They were downstairs today with yeah. the map. So if but you missed it, then you could give the PU, go it on the yeah, PUC the, the website. Yeah, the San Francisco PUC. You can get there they're, from they're the SFGov.org. I don't know. I saw a lot of empty tables. But PUC? Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's a map. It's also available online, too. But I do, I do want to talk about the hydrants because that's something Please I'm pretty do. familiar with. Yes. Um, we have two types of hydrants in San Francisco. It's one is a backup water supply, the, the big fat plugs with sometimes blue or red or black caps. That's an auxiliary water supply, not drinking water. And on the original rollout of the 100,000 handouts or so, they put a drinking water droplet on the big wide hydrant. They were made aware of it, and their subsequent reprints have the skinny, knobby-type hydrants, the small little, you know, the British-style smaller plugs. But think of the big round one with the big round, smooth um, head is not drinking water. The smaller, standard, white hydrant is the drinking water, and the new reprint has the correct photo on it. Yes, yes, but that's, that's a good thing to know. Can I? Can we, can we, oh. So let me um, let me get through this last question here of, the, of this, and then uh, and then we can open it up. Okay. How do I get a consultant to assess what I need to do to improve my building in event of an earthquake, and also to help me to find softest spots in my house? Well, unfortunately, DBI is not here, but they do have a great table downstairs. That's Department of Building Inspection, and they do all inspections. And so they often offer classes that are free to the community mm -hmm. where you can go to that site and have an hour, a one-hour lunch training on, on just exactly what you're talking about. And I also want to promote this, um, the program that Madeline, I don't remember if you mentioned in this session, but the mitigation project. Mitigation. There is a flyer at the back of the room. Um, it is a preparedness course, and we are giving out the free home earthquake safety kits. It's not the disaster kits with food and water. It's the kits with the straps for your entertainment systems, the putty for your china and your china cabinets, um, your china in your china cabinets, 
uh, it's, we were, we're giving out those starter kits for free, and there's a class in San Francisco, so you can pick up a flyer in the back of the room. If we're out of flyers, just see me, and I'll give you my card, or you can, and I'll tell you where on our website you can find those free classes with the free kits. Hold on, we have a question here. Do we have satellite phone service in California? Yes. Yes, we do. Yes, it can complement services in an emergency. Um, we, are, we are also planning very heavily for much less low-tech communication systems like ham radios. You can get free ham radio. You can get a ham radio license for $10 and um, become part of the city's auxiliary communication services. Um, so you can actually be guaranteed you'll be able to communicate with somebody in a disaster. Do you know how many? It, it's, it's depends. I actually don't know the mileage, but it depends upon the terrain. And ACS has a website Auxiliary on SFGov at sfgov.org slash ACS to get more information about ham radio communications in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. All right. Other questions? I was just curious the difference or kind of similarities between American Red Cross and NERT training. I guess ideally you'd want to have both in your neighborhood, but I was just thinking, okay, if I were to start something in my neighborhood, would I start getting 20 people together for American Red Cross? Would I just go to a NERT training that already yeah. exists? Yeah. Or I just didn't know what was the better. I think it, it depends on your community. You know, if they're raring to go and revving up and like, yes, we are ready to do this, we want to go all out, I'd say go to the fire department and, and get the full NERT training and everything. If they're kind of like, oh, I'm not sure, and, they, and you're just getting to know each other, the Red Cross training is really great because it's an hour, but we only cover the personal preparedness. Like, it's that first step. And NERT also does a personal preparedness part during their training. So if you want to say, okay, let's just get everybody in the same room and get a look at everyone's faces and know their names, you can do the first day of the Red Cross training. We'll partner up. You can invite us both to your first meeting, and we'll mm -hmm. present both of our trainings and different aspects of it. You can invite the Humane Society, and they'll come out and do a, a Animal pet Animal care and control. Huh? Animal care and control. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. Animal care and control. And they'll come out and do something. You know, you can have your own little mini resource fair, depending on the nature of your community. Um, we do first aid CPR. Do you guys do? We do not do yeah. first aid CPR. We <laughs> Your number. Right. So we do first aid CPR. We do the shelter training and case management and damage assessment. Um, we do a little bit of ham radio operators, but they do a lot of search and rescue and things like that and triage. We don't do any triage. So it's a combination of what you want. First steps, invite us both or invite the Red Cross to come out and do a personal preparedness training, and, and we'll get in touch with our friends at the fire department. So um, we are going to take some more questions, but before we do that, um, if you want to look under your – feel under your seat, um, we have some – there's some five – four stickers that are on some of the seats, so there's a lot of seats that don't have anyone. So if you have a sticker, we have a little prize for you. So let's see here. I didn't put, it's, I didn't put like any in the front the row because nobody sits there. <laughs> Let's see. There's one in the back. Woo! All right. All right. You get a prize. So hold that up so everyone knows what they're looking for. All right. Yay. Come on. There's three other ones under there. Feel around the seats next to you. All right, number two. There are two oh, more. All right. There's
questions that people have? Okay, go ahead. <coughs> If you drink the bad water and the fire hydrants, what happens to you? The smaller hydrants are connected, connected to the drinking water um, system. The larger hydrants are connected to the reservoir on top of Twin Peaks. And what happens to you if you drink? Sir, the, any contaminated water um, ha, can have various bad health results. I saw another hand, didn't I? No, no? I got another question. All right. Um, I have some references to that on the NERT website. Um, we still recommend getting underneath duck cover and hold is what we recommend. It's what the state of California recommends. It's what the Red Cross mm -hmm. recommends. And so, <laughs> sir, thank you. Thank in, you. In, in the majority of people injured in earthquakes are injured by broken glass, things falling off of shelves and hitting them. The majority of people injured in earthquakes are not injured by buildings pancaking on them in the United States. So, thank you, sir. thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Thank you. We'll let people approach you with their individual questions at the end. All right, panelists, thank you so very much for your participation today. Um, we are going to be posting some information from the panelists on to the website. So, if you want to know how to get a hold of Nikos, go to the NEN Neighborhood Empowerment Network website, and you'll be able to do that. Thank you.